Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar. Weekdays at 2 on Mile High Sports. There have been times in Nuggets history, a history that we've explored in greater depth, obviously, over the last few weeks and months. There have been times when the NBA draft came and went and the Nuggets made little to no news. This will not be one of those nights although the draft may not exactly yield a bonanza, Denver really doesn't need it for that reason. They are not building a team. They are not filling holes in their playing rotation. With the exception of Bruce Brown, we know that at least six of the other seven players in the rotation, Jeff Green being the possible exception, are set to return next year. They are under contract. They are being paid pretty much what they should be paid. We can quibble about a player or two here and there, but basically the Nuggets have set up a salary structure that pays everyone fairly. The stars make the most money. The support players make good money, but not money that doesn't align with what they are capable of bringing on and off the court to the franchise at the moment. The Nuggets, as we speak, have three draft picks. That may change tonight. I think we will see more trading tonight. We've already seen a lot of trading, including a blockbuster deal that was worked out late last night among the Boston Celtics, the Washington Wizards, and the Memphis Grizzlies. When we left you yesterday, and by the way, I'm Sandy Clough alongside Sean Rotar, who will be joining us in a matter of minutes. When we left you yesterday... It seemed likely, if not certain, that there would be a deal that would involve Kristaps Porzingis going from the Washington Wizards to the Boston Celtics as part of a three-team transaction. And the Clippers are supposed to have been that third team. The Clippers, as it happened, were set to acquire Malcolm Brogdon the longtime guard from Boston who has started and come off the bench playing a substantial role during his time with various teams, particularly the Indiana Pacers, the Milwaukee Bucks, and the Boston Celtics, where he came off the bench this year and was very productive. But there were concerns, uh, apparently, on the Clippers' side about the health of Malcolm Brogdon. So, Malcolm Brogdon. In effect, torpedoed that deal. <laughs> and not voluntarily, of course, not because he wanted to stay in Boston, but because the Clippers didn't feel he was physically sound enough to trade for him. So you have the Wizards and the Celtics who still want to make a deal, but they need a third team involved to pull it off. 
And they got that third team in the Memphis Grizzlies, who may or may not be more relevant to Nuggets prospects in 23-24 than are the Los Angeles Clippers. We don't know that for sure. We know that John Morant will be spending the first 25 games of next season under suspension, mandated by the National Basketball Association. And we know that this deal was not identical or even particularly similar to the deal that was rumored to be on the verge of happening yesterday when we left the air at four. This one involved Malcolm Smart, who's been in Boston for nine years, is one of the more popular Celtic players, was named this year as effectively the player who was deemed to have hustled the most for his team. And certainly he has always played with great energy and hustle, uh, sometimes with a slightly inflated view of his offensive capabilities. But for the most part, he's been a solid player for the Celtics and gradually over the years an improved playmaker. So smart being part of that deal changed things a little bit so that Boston ends up sending smart to Memphis where he will stand in for John Morant and then join John Morant in that backcourt when Morant is eligible to play 25 games in the next season. Danilo Gallinari, old friend, along with Mike Muscala, and a 35th pick in the draft tonight go to the Washington Wizards. Boston gets Chris Porzingis, the 25th pick in the draft tonight, Golden State's first-round pick from Memphis in 2024, and Memphis ends up sending Tyus Jones to Washington, Tyus Jones being the reserve point guard who backed up Morant this year and was scheduled to step in and start for Morant. And Tyus Jones is a good basketball player. In fact, he may be a more natural point guard with a more easily fitting skill set. He may be more of a natural point guard than is Marcus Smart. But in any case, that's the deal. So the Nuggets will be seeing a little more of Marcus Smart next year playing for the Memphis Grizzlies than they would have seen of Marcus Smart had he remained with the Boston Celtics. And the Porzingis trade is interesting because it gives the Celtics a dimension they haven't had. The question, as is the case with so many of the stars now in the NBA, is whether someone who has played and started more than 65 games only once, and that was his rookie year way back in 2015-16 with the Knicks, whether that player, Chris Asperzingas, who has averaged 54 games played a season over the past four years, will be on the court enough. I mean, that's not even two-thirds of the games. That's what he's averaging. Now, I understand there were shortened seasons with the, uh, the lockdown and everything else, but 
this has been an oft-injured player. Tore his ACL in 18-19, missed the entire season. Tore his meniscus in 2020. And again, his average is 54 games played per year over the last four years, which would be 2019-20 through 2022-23. But in an eight-year career, in 402 games, averaging a little more than 31 minutes per game, he has shot at better than 45%. He has hit threes at a rate of almost 36%. He's a good foul shooter, around 83%, averaging 7.9 rebounds, 1.8 assists, 1.8 blocks, and only 1.7 turnovers per game. And he's a 19.6 per game score. But last year with Washington, at the age of 27, Porzingis at 7'3", 240, averaged 23.2 points per game, 8.4 rebounds, 2.7 assists, one and a half blocks in 65 games. Now, again, his rookie year was the only season in which he's played more than 65, but he did get to 65 games last year, shot almost 50% from the field, 49.8%, 38.5% from three-point range, and he was better than an 85% foul shooter. And as uh, post-up players go in the NBA, he's definitely one of the top five or six. I would say Nikola Jokic is number one, but among centers, it might be Jokic one and Porzingis two. Porzingis has, even at 7'3", 240, the kind of range and versatility that would conceivably allow him to spend some time at the power forward position, not just at center, and he would seem to fit right in with the Celtic center combination of Al Horford and Robert Williams III. He could play with either one. He could play without either one or both. And he's probably a better outside shooter than Marcus Smart is. So the Celtics' propensity for taking outside shots will still exist, but you get a more efficient offensive player in Porzingis uh, than the Celtics had with Smart. The point of getting into detail on this is that the Boston Celtics last year were considered pretty much all year long one of the top two or three teams in the East. Uh, They finished second as the regular season came to a close behind only Milwaukee. Philadelphia was third, but as you might have detected when the Celtics beat the 76ers in the playoffs, when the Celtics were minding their business, they were pretty effective against Philadelphia. Now, they had to win the last two games of the series to win the series, but their sense, I think, was that they didn't necessarily lose in the next round to the Miami Heat because... they were lacking in any particular area, but you got the feeling as you watch the entire series unfold, Miami win the first three, Boston win the next three, Miami win game seven in Boston, Miami winning three games in Boston, that the Celtics were just careless, inefficient, and Porzingis will improve that. But the Boston Celtics 
were considered, along with the Nuggets, to be the two most talented teams. If you looked at the roster, the playing rotation, assuming everybody on both sides was healthy and playing, those were the two most talented teams. And the point I'm trying to make is that the Boston Celtics, even as a deal for Perzingis got nixed yesterday evening, wanted desperately to make this deal. So they got Memphis involved instead of the Clippers and they made the deal. It is a blockbuster deal. The Nuggets don't have to do anything like that. The Nuggets are sitting with three picks overall at 29, 32, and 37. And they can do anything they want with those picks. As Sean Grotar joins me now, uh, my opinion, and again, I have no inside information on this. It's just a feeling. I don't think the Nuggets will make three draft picks tonight. I don't get that impression either. How about you? Yeah, I think whether they're going to try to trade up because there is a particular player they covet that's uh, a couple spots away. They can't go crazy climbing the ladder when you're talking about the uh, the draft capital that they have, but they can move up four or five spots with relative ease if they'd like with just the three picks that they have and not have to put anything from the future in it, which is good because uh, they don't have a lot for the future. They've obviously mortgaged a lot of those draft picks to continue to build this team right now. I, I think they'll probably walk away with two players or maybe even one if they feel that there's one person that they really like. But it, you talk about the additions from Boston. I think it's interesting because there's a little overlap there. Porzingis rarely finishes games. Uh, much like we saw with Michael Porter Jr., despite the fact a max deal guy, uh, finding the, the end of the games on the bench, it, most of the time, obviously, ceding that space to Bruce Brown. Porzingis has been that guy, too. And whether it's it's been with Dallas or, or or even in the years where he's continued to play well as his career continues to bump up a little bit, much is made of his blocks per game. Yeah, that's because he's seven three, but he is not a good defender, and he rarely is on the court at the end of a game because he is a, a minus defender. And you give up a plus defender in Marcus Smart, who I get it. Maybe they're maximizing his value. They did get a first round picks out of it reportedly uh, as Marcus Smart hits thirty. But Marcus Smart is a top-tier defensive player. Chris Tapps Porzingis is a minus player who you usually can't even leave on the floor in the final couple minutes of a game. And so what we're seeing in adjustment to the Nuggets, Sandy, is teams like the Celtics, teams like the Suns, going and swinging big for players that they know are incomplete, that they know have flaws, that they know are going to hamper their salary down the road because the Nuggets have them right now running a little bit scared and realizing that uh, maybe the talent they have isn't enough. The funny thing is what they're chasing is an older style of building a team now. They're taking, they're choosing the last CBA's approach. Let's just grab a bunch of big-name guys, highly paid stars, throw them together, and it'll work. It didn't work for the Lakers. It didn't work for the Suns. Uh, it did. The opposite, however, worked quite well for the Nuggets and the Miami Heat. Depending on Brogdon's health, I think you're correct, uh, assumption being that Jalen Brown comes back. Jason Tatum, obviously, is under contract uh, in Boston. Jalen Brown, those, by the way, are now the, the longest-tenured Celtic. New big three. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, that's how quick three. it turned around. Jalen uh, Brown is the longest-tenured Celtic Por- right now. Porzingis joins them, and, and you're right. It, it's going to be hard 
to envision Boston having already lost Smart, keeping, oh, let's say Grant Williams, for example. Now, he's a restricted free agent. But even as a restricted free agent, odds are he won't be playing for the Celtics next year. As you look at this trade and yep. how they're apparently loading up, uh, I I like Porzingis as a player. Um, there are questions about his health. As you very I, I, I would out. have to look more closely at Washington's games uh, this year. I know they were massively better with Porzingis on the floor than they were when he was on the bench. Uh, it strikes me, and again, I haven't looked at their schedule from last year, that they weren't a lot of one-sided games, most of which they lost. They were a 35-47 team. So if you're getting blown out or uh, on occasion you're way ahead at the end of the game, there'd be no reason to have a guy who has been as injury-prone as Porzingis on the floor in one-sided games. But you, you'd have to do a lot of checking. And I think there is something to what you're saying. He's not out there for his defense. He's out there as a scorer. He's a pretty good rebounder, unselfish. It averages a block and a half. He, he's, he's a nice player when healthy. I don't necessarily look at Kristaps Porzingis and believe that this is a guy that uh, he doesn't look like an all-star to me. He looks like a, a nice player that maximizes his size. But certainly, it's no, it's no small thing to average 20-plus per game in today, even in today's NBA, and that's legit. But a guy that's seven foot three that averages 8.4 rebounds a game, that seems to me to be pedestrian. Well, you know, listen, everybody who plays the position in the NBA... But he's a good shooter, and he's a good three-point shooter. ...suffers by comparison with Jokic. Well, yeah. And I think there is a danger in saying that because you don't compare favorably in most, if not all, areas with Jokic, then... Well, you're a flawed player. The flaw with Porzingis is that he gets hurt a lot. Uh, he missed an entire season uh, with the ACL tear. He missed uh, heavy portions of 2020 with the torn meniscus. 54 games a year uh, makes him a little more reliable when it comes to health and availability than Anthony Davis and a lot more reliable than Zion Williams. Yep, that's true. And you know, this, we say, we say this, and probably others feel more emphatically about it. When Davis is healthy, he's a hell of a player. Uh, when Zion is healthy, which is even more rare than Davis being healthy, Zion's a hell of a player. This guy's a hell of a player when he's healthy, and he's available more in the last than four he's years. Ever been. Than those other guys are, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and more available than he's ever been. He's you're, ever been. you're right. Right. Yeah. Uh, he was once known as the unicorn. Right now, we know there is one unicorn in the NBA, and he is Nikola Jokic, about whom we will talk more later on, because the great Bob Ryan in the Boston Globe today <clears throat> wrote a column that consisted of Bill Walton's assessment of Nikola Jokic, and... The player to whom Walton compares Jokic is a player that none of us have mentioned in comparison with Nikola Jokic ever. Hmm. Bill Walton becomes the first. We'll tell you who that player is, and we'll open up uh, the phone lines and 
Uh, our text line at 303-831-1340. And have you perhaps guessed it? Uh, yeah, I had, who I had seen, Yeah, this would be interesting to see. is when he's talking about Jokic. Uh, once again, Bill Walton proving that he is and will be forevermore the president of the Nikola Jokic fan club. And he subscribes to my view that Nikola Jokic might well be the greatest basketball player who ever lived. Whew. High praise. The Celtics are chasing. The Suns are chasing. They're all chasing. The Nuggets are champs. We'll talk more about how this draft will basically let these teams take the next step next on Miley Sports. I went down to the Chelsea drugstore to get your prescription. Wow! I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar, presented by Burnham Law. Hire the winner at BurnhamLaw.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Boston will walk away with Chris Stapps Przingis. That is, uh, I think, an upgrade. Obviously, they, they preferred to trade in Malcolm Brogdon rather than Marcus Smart did the Celtics, but... Malcolm Brogdon is not a bad player by any stretch of the imagination. I agree with you. I think the Celtics are better. They are they are chasing like the they Suns gave up are more, chasing. But they got more. They, back. they got more back because they also come away with uh, two different first round picks. Those picks are not all that high. But uh, as we're talking about with the Nuggets and their draft situation, they can be used to uh, either flip to another you know sure. another year. They they can be used to acquire their players. There's lots of ways you can take advantage of those first round picks. But before we left, you talked about. Uh, Bob Ryan's column in the Boston Globe with uh, Bill Walton, of course, uh, the, the two alone, uh, all-time greats in their respective fields, talking about Nikola Jokic. And, uh, and I have not had the opportunity to read this one, so I will learn along with the listeners. But I am I'm intrigued because we've compared Nikola Jokic to a lot of different players, both past and present. And, and it's hard to do so because his skill set is essentially unique but walton apparently had a uh, take on it and as, as, as you would expect previous best passing big man take. of all time yes. uh, who admittedly and willingly and maybe definitively passed that crown to Jokic, it's informative to hear what he has to say well uh, first this is bob ryan's lead the nba draft beckons and it's wise to remember that all drafts are inexact sciences Consider that Serbian wonder Nikola Jokic was a second rounder, the 41st pick of the 2014 draft. And speaking of Nikola Jokic, he will never need an agent as long as Bill Walton is around. We said Bill Walton is the president of Nikolic, a Nikola Jokic fan club, and he has been since the beginning, to be honest. And in fact, he refers to that, Walton does, recalling I kept getting these random texts and videos when he was a rookie. They'd say, hey, Bill, you got to see this guy. And now, Ryan asks, and Walton replies, he's the best basketball player in the world. And Ryan adds, so saith a man who has a right to judge while others routinely, and you might say logically, evaluate Jokic in terms of other seven-footers, Bill Walton, as you might expect, parenthetically, has a different viewpoint. He's the closest thing to Steve Nash 
I've ever seen. That has not been a comparison we've made. Ryan writes, whoa, what gives? Jokic is 7 feet 280. Nash was a 6'3 guard. And here is what Walton says about Nikola Jokic. And it isn't word for word he's the best player who ever lived, but tell uh, tell me how you would read this. No player I've ever seen, I've seen ever, and Walton has seen everybody. Remember, he grew up in the very early 1960s. He has seen everybody. His idol growing up was Bill Russell. He has stated his admiration for Wilt Chamberlain many times over the years. He played at UCLA with the separation, I think, of one or two years after Kareem Abdul-Jabbar did. And he and Abdul-Jabbar are pretty good friends. Uh, They were competitors, and there was a time before he had his foot problems in which Bill Walton would on occasion outplay Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar referred to that in the movie Airplane, in which he drops his character, actually, and uh, reveals that he is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and points out that you tried taking a Walton up and down the court all night. No player I've ever seen has impressed me more because he never had a physical advantage in any game he ever played. Now, he's talking a little about Nash and a little bit about Jokic because he's comparing the two. And Ryan interprets it by saying this, Nash didn't just play the game, he fought the game, and so does Jokic. Here's Walton again. I had the privilege of watching Pele play soccer. I mean, he's a, he's a uh, real sportsman. Yeah. Joe Montana play football and Larry Bird play basketball. These guys saw something before it happened. Mozart, Beethoven, and Einstein. Einstein. Wow. Okay. Uh, now you know you're talking about uh, Bill Walton here. Uh, they saw the future. Tony Hawk revolutionized the realm of the possible in skateboarding. And Jokic sees things before they happen. His decision-making is spectacular. What it comes down to is that Jokic is just smarter than the other guys. That's what makes a champion. Think of chess. Your move dictates the opponent's move. And with a successful move, you make the foe helpless. That's what Jokic does to the opposition. And Ryan recounts his playoff statistics. Walton says, and I have argued this for many years and gotten plenty of pushback on this point, This is Walton, one of the great rebounders when healthy of his time and maybe all time. All time. All time, certainly. Talking about Jokic, he's a tremendous rebounder. Walton's technique on the boards has never been matched by anybody in the history of basketball. Just watch a few film clips, and you'll see that he is flawless when it comes to technique. Here's what Walton says about Jokic. He has a great sense of where the ball will come off. Jokic can back foes down from the foul line, writes Ryan, if necessary. And when he gets there, he knows what to do. Marvel's Walton. That little flip shot of his is amazing. Ryan again. The Jokic soft touch results in more shots gently rolling around the rim before settling in than anyone in the game. Then there are all those three-pointers, which are seldom his first option. Walton points out he makes most of them up against the clock. 
Ryan again. He may look lumbering, but he's sure-handed with the ball, and he's faster than he looks. Walton says, I have never seen a setter drive the ball up court that way, and he does it as a regular thing. You never see anyone catch him from behind when he's leading the fast right. break. That's true. He is absolutely got that correct. that Jerry Rice thing going on where it seems, doesn't seem he's that fast until you get on the actually play. And field. again, you know you're, you're dealing with Bill Walton. When Ryan makes the observation that you could argue he's changed the concept of what a center can be. Walton says, no, not really. Center is not a position. It's a concept. <laughs> now, that's a Bill Waltonism, that's a if there's Bill ever Waltonism, been. That's a Bill but yeah. it applies to Jokic, does it not? It does. And fits in with the comparison with Steve Nash, right? His teammates gleefully give him the ball, Walton says. The obvious question, right, Ryan, of course, is, okay, Bill, how would you compare yourself with Nikola Jokic? After all, Walton has long been the gold standard for passing centers. You might as well ask him to vote Republican. I don't get into that, Walton says. I was lucky to play with some of the greatest teams in history. I was lucky to have great coaches. I was lucky I had teammates who could catch the ball. No, he'd much prefer to rhapsodize about his new favorite player, writes Ryan. It warms Walton's heart to hear Jokic dismiss his triple-double exploits as quote-unquote just stats. I love his humility, Walton says. He is all about the team. No one tells him to live a life of boastfulness. He loves his teammates, his coaches, and his city. You couldn't ask for more. Walton says he watches Nugget games, quoting now with a gigantic smile on my face, and he hopes young people out there appreciate what they're seeing. Basketball is an easy game when people play for each other. You can tell that Jokic is happy for the success of others. My hope is that kids will watch Denver with their focus on team play and say, yeah, that's what I want to do. And finally, Walton says this, long live Nikola Jokic, <laughs> the best player in the world. It is, I, I look at it at times and I think that, okay, I my instinct is when they hear that he's the best player ever to say, whoa, we really need to pump the brakes on that. But well, that's what Dan Shaughnessy did in the same newspaper just a few days but ago. But it's the way that you want to slice and dice it, right? Sure. Uh, how do you, how do you want, how do you want to look at it? Are you looking at it as the player with the most ways to beat you in the history of the game? You might be able to make that argument, but do you want to look at it as a, a player that, has been able to dominate in multiple different capacities of the game at the same time, you might be able to make that argument. It just depends on the way you look at it. But when you start hearing guys like Bill Walton and Charles Barkley, who has intimated the same thing, and Charles Barkley played with uh, more than a few greats himself at this overlapping in his career, when both of those guys indicate that Nikola Jokic is the best basketball player that they've ever seen and perhaps simply put the best basketball player that's ever played, you have to take that seriously, even though uh, on, on the surface, the instinct is to be, whoa, 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 relax here. Hang on. That feels like it's a bit much. But it all depends on the way you, you look at it. I mean, it, 
you, people have thought about it in a lot of different ways. You know, okay, if you want to take a player one-on-one, if, who, who'd win? I don't know. Well, Jokic is 6'11", 285. Uh, and it would be tough to be one-on-one. But uh, I think we told the story uh, last week, and it's part of the 30 for 34 part documentary on ESPN on Bill Walton, that in Walton's one year of good health with the Celtics in 85-86, he was in practice playing with other reserves called the green team against the white team, which basically represented the five starting Celtics, Mm -hmm. including Bird and McHale and Dennis Johnson and tremendous starting lineup, Danny Ainge, Robert Parrish. I mean, come on, (laughs) right? And the green team, as you might expect, had a hell of a time trying to beat the white team in practice, and that bugged Walton no end because the white team played hard. I mean, even in practice, their pride was on the line. Yeah. And the Celtics had a pretty good bench. Awful if you Walton didn't. was the sixth man of the year that season. So finally, Walton decides to challenge McHale to a game of one-on-one. And you're thinking, Bill Walton, who in the previous nine years had hardly played basketball, had one bad foot and one was the, the other one on the way of, uh, to breaking down, had bad knees, a bad back, uh, you know, played 20 minutes a game sometimes less, and he's challenging Kevin McHale, who some regard as the greatest low, po- low post player in the history of the game, uh, along with Akeem, I think, had more moves than yeah. just about anybody else. And as we described when we told the story last week, uh, Robert Parrish tells the story in the 30 for 30 documentary. McHale can't get a shot off, and the interview says, you mean Walton was blocking his shot? And Kale said, no, I mean what I said. He could not get a shot off. Walton killed him. Killed him. Kevin McHale's in the prime of a Hall of Fame career. Bill Walton is playing his last full season in the NBA in 1985-86. He hurts his foot again the next year. He spends three years trying to get back. He can't do it, and he eventually is forced to retire. And he wipes out McHale. One-on-one. Just wipes him out. And there's another story in there about he and Bird playing one-on-one at one time. And this speaks to the greatness of Larry Bird. Walton got ahead 10-0 in a game that was played to 12, and Bird won. Bird won the next 12. That ends up happening. And it was winners out, so Bird made 12 shots in a row. And finished that off and said, thank you very much. And and went on. But the fact that Walton was ahead of Bird 10 to 0 and beat the stuffings one-on-one out of Kevin McHale tells you all you need to know about how good Bill Walton was. The two things that I keep in that I think when you think about Walton and Barkley both saying that are interesting. And I think you hit on it exactly, Sandy, that that I think is intriguing. And it's these these are two guys that were masters of technique in very different ways. Walton's technique was flawless. It's easy to forget. Uh, Charles Barkley, one of the very best rebounders of his time, is the same size as Christian Braun in, when it comes to height. I would say Christian, Bra- Christian Brown, pardon me, when it comes to height. Even, yeah, even potentially smaller when you, when oh, you actually... I think so. But so Barkley, 
might have been six four and a half. And, un- might and understood. Been. So in other words, in other words, Brown Jam- is six six. In other words, half, Jamal Murray's six, height, seven. basically the same height as Jamal Murray. Yeah. Is is where Charles Barkley was, and yes, I know he was a big guy, but that's technique. That's body positioning, knowing when to jump and where to jump, knowing how to read everything. And the two guys who respect technique and succeeded because of technique over athleticism are the two guys that are Jokic's biggest fan. The madness that is going to occur today continues unabated as teams continue to jockey. The Warriors making moves now as well. Will it make a difference for the Nuggets? We'll talk about it next to Miley Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. The jockeying for position for the Denver Nuggets uh, newfound crown continues unabated, and tonight's draft is going to be bonkers. Uh, we knew that there was going to be a third team for Chris Paul. That didn't make any sense for Chris Paul when he was traded to the Wizards for a, a giant haul of draft picks, although no first. Uh, they end up flipping Paul to the Golden State Warriors. And we talked about this earlier this week when Draymond Green opted out. The idea, especially that that Draymond Green might go somewhere else, we knew his value was the best at the Warriors, substantially better than anywhere else. And we did wonder, actually, I think on on Monday, whether Jordan Poole might be the guy on the outs. Well, he is. Jordan Poole, a protected 20-30 first-round pick, a 2027 second-round pick, all go to the Wizards with Chris Paul headed to the Warriors. That's an interesting trade. Now, I think from a pure talent perspective, the Warriors downgrade as as it stands today with, with the way that Chris Paul is capable of playing today. But there is no question that for the Warriors, uh, Steve Kerr made it very clear. He thought the fight between Draymond Green and Jordan Poole, if you can call it a fight, the altercation that appeared pretty one-sided, uh, really never abated that that sort of a crisis as he termed it never really left so the, the biggest crisis of his coaching career and it never changed all year the entire year that even never draymond really green admitted that it, he he said i didn't have the voice to lead until very very late in the season and at that point things were set in place there was nothing much i could do and he certainly wasn't suggesting that Poole was responsible for it. He threw the punch, whatever the provocation was, and I'm sure there was some degree of provocation because Poole represented the future uh, Yeah, for Golden Obviously. State uh, coming off their championship in 21-22. And Draymond Green represented the past, mm-hmm. a glorious past, but the past. And but yeah, they gave Poole four years, 128 years. Right. But they had to give him that deal after Green punched him out. And Green did not get a deal. Now, I don't think Green resented that necessarily, but it put additional pressure on Poole to perform under the terms of that contract. Although it didn't kick in last year. It put pressure on him to perform, and he went from being... Probably the tip of the spear 
when you looked at Golden State's future to being a guy by the last playoff game or last playoff series even, you really couldn't play because he's taking so many bad shots and making so many mistakes, and he's not a particularly good defensive player, never was. And I think that punch represented the failure of the Warriors to thread that needle between the accomplishments of the past, the glorious past, and hopefully an equally bright future. And Green represented one faction, and Poole represented the other, and the Poole faction lost. Witness the trades made this year by Golden State, even before the trading of Poole, right. of uh, a number of, uh, including Wiseman, the big man. They're, they're trying about to keep a number of players right. who are considered yeah. poor guys for the future. The, the Warriors are clearly trying to keep the sun up in the sky a little bit on this generation with Thompson and with yeah. Curry and with Draymond Green. That's the choice that this trade and that's underlines. Now. Welcome to the uh, job, Mike Dunleavy Jr., who's well, for a, yeah. a small amount of time but, but makes this ha- deal. They really either had to let Green go or trade. Now, here's the part that's interesting. They're they really, couldn't keep them together. As strange as it sounds, because Chris Paul, uh, well, there's only four guards in the NBA active at all that have had 20,000 or more points in their career. James Harden, Russell Westbrook, uh, Chris Paul, and Steph Curry. Two of them playing together. But Chris Paul, in his career, has played in 1,214 regular season games, 114 postseason games, and he started every one of them. He's probably coming off the bench. They've traded six man for six man because what's happened, and this is why I think it's it's a good deal. It makes sense. It, it's a gamble. Again, much like what we see with the Suns, what we see with the Celtics, they're taking on guys that are maybe imperfect players at high expenses in a gamble of trying to unseat the Nuggets. But in this case, one of the, the Warriors' problems is when Steph Curry was off the court and Jordan Poole was not being efficient and effective, they had a difficult time either holding leads or catching up. And of that's course. one of the reasons they, they were terrible, terrible on the road. On the, road. Terrible. Uh, the theory is if Chris Paul comes off the bench now, not only does he have the yeah. ability to score a little bit, but he elevates the rest well, of the players yes, and he you makes, don't he makes lose them more that efficient. much. It makes the sense in a 19th season for him he to come off the bench for the first time ever. has, among players with impressive assist-to-turnover ratios, He's at or near the top of the oh, list yeah. still. Certainly. He is still he a smart this year player. Too. He is not the scorer he used to be. He can't play the minutes he used to be. You bring him off the bench, you can spot him for the 20 to 25 most important minutes, and in certain situations perhaps claim a little more. He's less likely to get hurt that way or suffer from the wear and tear of mm-hmm. the regular season. And the Warriors are a team that only cares about the playoffs. And they know they have to be a better team on the road with or without home court advantage in the playoffs next year. They need to be a better team on the road because even though last year uh, they had some home court advantage in the playoffs, obviously, they needed to win some big games on the road, especially in the finals. When they're down 2-1 in Boston, going to game four, they had to win that game. This year's team could not have won that game. I don't think so. Chris Paul, as to your point, still fourth in the league this year in assists at 8.9 right. per game. Four and a half to one, also to your point. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 8.9 assists to so 1.9 turnovers. Green back, and Green's a passer first. Certainly. So you bring back more of a passing mentality 
rather than a shooting mentality, and it's fine for Steph Curry and even Clay Thompson to have a shooter's mentality, but you can't have Jordan Poole doing it, and you can't have guys coming off the bench hoisting up shots without the ball moving very much, and you can't have the kind of turnovers that the Warriors were generating this year. Not, Not turnovers forced. I'm talking about turnovers they were making. And Paul's not going to help force more turnovers, but when he's in the game, they're going to turn the ball over a lot less, a lot less than they did this year. Now, I don't know that they'll be an appreciably better team, but they have to go, and this would pertain to Mike Dunleavy, but, you know, a trade this large. Listen, everybody is involved. Ownership's involved. Uh, Steve Kerr is involved. Mike Dunleavy Jr. was an executive this year with Golden State, and he saw what Jordan Poole had turned into, and I think he was in agreement that at least with Golden State, you'd never get back to that promising player of 2021-22, not in San Francisco anyway. Maybe, maybe in Washington, where there are fewer expectations, where they have cleaned house, no more Persingas, no more Bradley Beal, the two highest-paid players, they're out, and you've got a chance to build something with a new general manager there, a, a coach who is very nurturing in Wes Unsell Jr., who I thought was a terrific assistant here and has done as good a job as you could have expected anyone to do in Washington in his, what's it been, two years uh, at the helm, I thought he did as well as you could have done with that team, with that organization. But now they've changed leadership. It's a very different team. And I think Tyus Jones and Jordan Poole represent a fairly interesting backcourt for them. But an economical one, the two guys combined uh, $41 for the the two of them. So I think they're building correctly, but for the Warriors, it's intriguing. Draymond Green made $38 million. Now, I might not make $38 million in this new deal, but the Warriors with cap space uh, right now are still in the worst spot of any team. Any team. Uh, the Stands right now, they're still 114 over. They're way over the apron. Uh, this team cost over $500 million given their taxes on top of that. Now, well, they yeah. add salary when you're talking about pool to Paul. Right. And now if you're going to bring Draymond Green back at, at at least market value, let's say, I mean, I can't imagine if they're going to bring him back, you can bring him back for less than 30. You're still talking about an almost 25% pay cut. So you're talking about, let's just hypothetically say you even get him for that. Steph Curry at 52, Clay Thompson at 43. Let's say Draymond and Chris Paul at 30 each. Andrew Wiggins at 24. Uh, folks, that's it. And, that's and, it. And let's say this. That's the and, roster. Andrew Wiggins, Otherwise, no changes. Andrew Wiggins came back this year and played a lot better than anyone thought he would. Mm -hmm. But you know what? I think you pointed this out the other day. He's 29, not far from 30. He isn't a kid. Right. He's on the backside of his career. The upside is it's probably been hit, realistically. You know, And so, uh, again, this is reasons to be excited if you're a Nuggets fan because uh, not only are these teams really swinging big, and that's a concern for this year, but we talked about the idea of, of dynasty sort of being a different shape. The Suns, the Celtics, 
and the Warriors. You want to argue they all got better? That's okay. But you know what? They all got better for this year. Chris Paul's a free agent at the end of the year. Draymond Green is probably going to get a one-year deal. We talk about the the Celtics. Porzingis is on a one-year deal. Now, the guys aren't in Phoenix, but the cost is already prohibitive, and then it balloons to something insane next year. Bradley Beal starts jumping up to $57 million a year. These are one-year deals, whereas the Nuggets are still a couple years ready to, to build out. And so keep that in mind uh, going forward. Also keep in mind, we're changing the game over at Superbook Sports. Help your bets stay hot this summer. At Superbook Sports, the most trusted name in sports gambling, with a direct line to Las Vegas. And now when you use promo code MILEHIGH, you score up to $250 with their first bet bonus. That means win or lose, Superbook will match your first bet up to $250 with promo code MILEHIGH. Download the Superbook Sports app, enter the promo code MILEHIGH, and you'll get $250. Courtesy of Superbook Sports, visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. This isn't just about this season. The Nuggets window is open. And a whole bunch of the top competitors are taking one-year cracks at it. What does it mean? What does it mean for what we'll see tonight? We'll talk about it next on Mile High Sports. Let me down.